Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, again, good morning to those of us, those of you online. Um, we, uh, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town. And really, I'm pumped. I'm pumped about today. First, I'm pumped about these guys always playing so beautifully. Thanks, John and Andrew, yet again. Love you guys. Um, pumped about today. We're in week 13. Feels like we just got into this book. But we're in week 13 of our series, Jesus is Greater, going through the book of Hebrews. And uh, I'm pumped about today. So let's talk about this. There's a toad on the screen if you... <laughs> I was like, I need an image to put forth for this point. So the, uh, the original phrase, I just learned this this week. The original phrase for put your money where your mouth is, people speculate, comes is related to toads. So put your money where your mouth is, right? Back up what you're saying. Um, in the 17th, 18th century, con men in England were selling medicinal toads to people. If you just eat this toad, you'll be healed of whatever ailment you have. If you just eat this toad. Um, and so what the people would say is, okay then, con man. And they didn't, maybe they didn't know they were con men, so they probably wouldn't have said it that way. But they'd say, you eat the toad first. You put your money where your mouth is, and you eat the toad first. Let's see if you actually are healed. And apparently these con men would, like con men, fake eat the toad and not actually eat it. But that's what we're talking about today. We're going to look at the blood of Jesus is greater. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to look at how God puts his money where his mouth is. That the promises that he makes, he's going to back up with Jesus. Um, so the, the words are going to be on the screen. We're going to kind of go through um, the passage, and then I'll, I'll kind of unpack it. But uh, if you have a Bible, the word, otherwise the words are going to be on the screen. Uh, and so, But first, let's get a little bit caught up. We've been in this Hebrew series for a while now. We've seen Jesus is greater than so many things. He's greater than the Old Testament prophets because he is the message. He's superior to the angels. Even as the name he's inherited is superior to those. He's, his gospel is better than the Old Testament law. He, he comes as 100% human and 100% God. Uh, he's greater than the situations the Old Testament prophets wrote about. Jesus is greater than Moses as a mediator of the covenant. Loving Jesus is greater than what previous generations were offered. Jesus is the rest. He actually is what our souls are looking for. He's greater than earthly high priests. He's greater than our insecurities and doubts. He's greater than he's a great anchor for the soul. He's greater than the, the high priest Melchizedek that was from a different order of priests. And he's greater than religion. And that was last week. Brian talked about the end of religion. And we, we kind of looked at it this way. And the first covenant, the author of Hebrews just keeps coming back to this idea of the first covenant. This idea of religion. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I keep a set of rules and prescribed practices, and if I do that well, God accepts me. That's that idea of religion. And we said that the gospel is different. The gospel is I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That I have, that I have actually been accepted in the beloved through my faith because Jesus has done the things I couldn't do. And now, because of that, I obey. So the gospel says, all religion says, do. Earn your salvation. The gospel says, done. Your salvation has been earned for you. So all you are asked to do is believe. And so we looked at then this new covenant, making the old obsolete, making that way of approaching God obsolete. So it says here in Hebrews 8, as we concluded from last week, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is grow and growing old 
is ready to vanish away. And so that kind of sets us up as we're going to now turn toward uh, worship in the Old Covenant and see why is that obsolete? What's happening about that that's obsolete? So that's our passage, and I'll read it. I'll unpack it here. So starting in Hebrews 9, uh, verse 1, it says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room were the lampstand and the table with the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, the mercy seat. And this is like the fun part of this verse, of this passage of the author of Hebrews. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Kind of feels like you did though, like you just did. All right, never mind. Um, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he had offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this way that the the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to make clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various external wa- various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the end of the new order. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts leading to death so that we may serve the living God. I'm sorry, I did not hit that exclamation point there. Uh, Need patience with me. Uh, So let's go back into this. All right, I just read a lot of verses. What does that even mean? Uh, and so we'll start here. In this, just in the biblical storyline of this passage, right now in the storyline where the, the author of Hebrews is recalling what used to be in the first covenant, in this tabernacle, which we get a picture of this here, this tabernacle uh, tent. And so what we're recalling is the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary that was this tabernacle. So Israel has, been, so we have this, in the full biblical story, we have creation, Adam and Eve and sin enters the world. They're cast out of the garden. But God says, that's not acceptable. I want to draw people to myself. And so he calls Abraham in the wilderness to himself and says, go from your land. I'm going to make you a great nation. From Abraham, we get uh, um, Isaac and Jacob and we get the nation of Israel. And God delivers them through the Exodus and calls them to himself. And he's going to bring them into the promised land where he will be their God and they will be his people. So he enters into a covenant with them. That's that covenant that Moses mediated. 
They are his chosen. But right now in the passage, they're in the wilderness. But God wants to dwell with them in the wilderness. He is their God after all. And so for that, we get the tabernacle. And so we get this tabernacle, this tent that God gives the designs to. Brian talked about last week that he gives his spirit to people and they build this tabernacle so that it is a representation of what being in God's space is like. And so we see in this first room, a lampstand and the consecrated bread. The incense was, it's debated, was that in the first room or was that in the second room or was that near? Um, some people say that it, the incense actually is in the second room and the smoke then covers the, and fills the room to protect the high priest when he goes in. But that's called the holy place. Only priests could go in there. Only Levites. And that's where they do their ritual duties. And so that it says when everything had been arranged like this, when things were perfectly arranged, then the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So these priests were set up by God to carry out these ceremonial, precise actions. <clears throat> and this isn't all the priestly duties that, that uh, we look at here when we look at these ritual duties. It's just ceremonial, precise actions. This isn't all of them, but in the tabernacle it is. Dressing lamps, placing and replacing fresh bread, food offerings, drink offerings, burning incense. These were some of the things that the priests would do. Some other things they would do would um, declare lepers clean and other unclean people clean or unclean and some of those things. So we've got that first room that we're dealing with. That's, a, that's the holy place. That's a place that's set apart, but it's not the most holy place. The most holy place is described here in verse 7. It says, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And we saw from the passage that this most holy place is now behind this second curtain. And that has all these things, this gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, this gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, God sprouted life from a stick that Aaron had, his staff. Stone tablets of the covenant, and then this cherubim of glory, these angelic winged creatures that overshadowed the atonement cover, or the mercy seat. And one thing I did find interesting is that behind, so in the first curtain were things that humans, priests, touched and did. But behind the second curtain were things that God touched and did for the people. All of these things on this were things that God provided to the people or areas that God interacted. They were holy because God had interacted with them. And so that's the tabernacle. We've got this first room and the second room, but what it is is a place to meet with God and make atonement, which we'll talk more about. But behind that second curtain, again, we have to see only the high priest was allowed to go. Once a year, every year, on the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter 16, and the priest would go in with sacrificial blood for his sins and the sins of the people. And the passage says even sins committed in ignorance or other translations tell us unintentional sins. People are going behind the curtain. We see in Leviticus 16, that's the chapter that describes the Day of Atonement. Why is this set up this way? Starting in verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron, that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. He can't just walk in here willy-nilly. I'm going to be there. And there's a process to coming into my presence. 
And we see more. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. So Aaron is this high priest who has sins. So he has to cover his sins before he can go in. And lastly, in this way of, of sprinkling blood on the mercy seat, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So this priest is representing the Israelites in the most holy place that they might be cleansed and atoned for. So we've got to ask, though, I mean, if we're not asking it, if you ever think about Christianity has is, is got a lot of blood, what's with all the blood? And Brian mentioned this last week, and I think this illustration is helpful. So on the, the blue image is God's space, and the left image is, is human space. God's space is holy. It's where he dwells. It's pure. It's righteous. It's undefiled. It's perfect. But then we have humanity and humanity's space, as I talked about with the garden. Separation from God, where, where death happens, where there's impurity. There's, God is set apart, and he cannot come near to that space. Or rather, that space cannot come near to him. People in that space cannot come here to, near to him. So that purple line is the tabernacle. And the way into the tabernacle was from blood. Sinner, for sinners to go into God's space, they had to be purified. They had to be cleansed. Atoning, atoning blood had to be offered for their sins. And a clean life, and the life is in the blood. So blood had to be offered, blood had to be shed for the people to draw near to God. But the only way they could draw near to him was through the high priest who also had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. So then we have to ask, is this good enough? Is ritual good enough? Is this sacrificial system in the old covenant good enough? And for that, we keep reading on. In verses 9, or chapter 9, 8 through 10, it says, the Holy Spirit was showing by this, by the curtain, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. So the tabernacle, the curtain is showing us the fulfillment isn't here yet. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So we see here these gifts and sacrifices that were being offered in the old covenant sacrificial system were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were merely external. And they only offered a temporary cleansing. That's the significance of the fact that the Day of Atonement repeats year after year after year. It's not complete. Why? Because God cares about the whole person. God cares about who we are on the inside. And for that, we actually go to the words of Jesus to make that case. So in Matthew 23, Jesus is in the midst of a, of a tirade against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day. And it says, starting in verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, 
mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. He continues, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It's important for us to know that the Pharisees at this time are the religious leaders. They are the cream of the crop. They are the holiest people according to the law that could possibly be. But they're so focused on external cleanness that they ignore what's going on inside. They're sincere in their religious rule-keeping for external appearances, but they're ignoring the sin that dwells in them, the hypocrisy and the wickedness. And that's the problem with ritual. That's the problem with religion. It only cleanses the outside of the person. This is an image of a mask because I wanted to highlight the the word hypocrite. It's a Greek word. It just means actor or stage performer. Someone that is putting on a mask or a facade and then performing from behind it. Jesus is calling them hypocrites. He's saying you are demonstrating on the outside very righteously. You want everyone to see how righteous you are, but on the inside, you're wicked. But they were the most religious. They were the best of the best. And that's the problem with the old covenant sacrificial system is it only worked on the external person. These sacrifices and religious religion itself, the idea that we can earn our way to God by our actions are intrinsically effective. Religion only produces hypocrites, not holy people. And we'll say more about that in a second. It's intrinsically effective, the passage tells us why. Because it doesn't open the way into the most holy place. It doesn't get you to God's presence. It's not a lasting atonement. Year after year, it's repeated. And the big one is, in this passage, it can't cleanse the inner person. These sacrifices do not cleanse the inner person, only the external That's what the Pharisees were missing. I was trying to think of a way to explain this more clearly, and I, I was reminded that I used to love Hot Wheels cars when I was a kid. My dad said I would like take the car and like try and see how it was working. All it is is like two little axles. What did I expect to see? Um, but I would always just play with them, you know, and that was my teenage years. Just kidding. I was like a young kid when, that, when I did that. Um, but on the left, right, we've got this Hot Wheels Lamborghini. On the right, we've got the real deal. Lamborghini, probably 600 horsepower in that thing. The point uh, I'm trying to make is trying to be transformed through ritual, trying to be transformed inwardly through religious practice and just keeping all the rules is like trying to climb inside the Hot Wheels Lamborghini and drive it. It doesn't work. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. 
And that's why he's calling out the hypocrites. But then we ask, wait, hold on a minute here. But God set this up. Didn't God set the sacrificial system up this way? Is he contradicting himself? What's the point of that? And this is where uh, at Hope we, we have a thing we call hermeneutics. It just means everybody has it. I'm just, the way we do ours is we put a lens on when we read the Bible. That's just what hermeneutics means. There's a way to read the Bible. And at Hope we believe it's to read the Bible backwards because the story concludes it reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. And because it does, it changes everything about the rest of the story. The picture becomes fully clear at Jesus. And so we go back to the passage. See, is that, does that bear out? It says here in verse 8, The Holy Spirit was showing that by this, the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. God set it up this way as a system to point forward to Jesus. And now it says, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. The time has come. When Jesus is on the scene, it changes everything about that old sacrificial system. Continue on in verse 12, it says, He did not enter by means of blood and of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So the futility of the old system is pointing forward. And this verse changes everything because it says he entered not by this old system's blood, he entered by his own blood. Different blood was offered so that worshipers could draw near to God. Not animal sacrifices, but Christ. And because of it, it changes the way the redemption operates. This redemption that Christ offers is eternal. But why we read the Bible backwards is because the priest is the sacrifice. It's not about the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus is the priest and he's also the sacrifice. And now, this is the fun part. So when you read Leviticus, if you ever start a Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year, the joke is that by the time you get through Genesis and you get through everything, but by the time you get to Leviticus, you're slowing down. You're checking out. Why? Because you're reading the Bible forward. And you get to these priests and the sacrificial system and you say, I don't get it. What is this all about? Why is there so much blood and all these other things, these practices happening? But when you read the story backwards, you actually want to read Leviticus because it's all about Jesus. The whole sacrificial system, the point of it was to testify to its own futility and to the perfection of the redemption that was coming in Christ. Because Jesus is going to make entry into the true tabernacle, not the shadow, not the replica. Jesus is the true priest who is the true sacrifice and he's the one who makes true cleansing available. The superiority of this—is that a word? Did I just invent? The superiority of Christ's sacrifice is that He goes through the true tabernacle once for all. Our representative is always there. He does this by means of His own unblemished and sinless blood. We'll talk more about that in a second. This offers eternal redemption. We don't have to send our priest back in every year. He's in. He's in the room. 
It offers complete atonement for sin. Why? Because it's covered by his blood. And then the big thing is it cleanses the inner person, the thing that the old covenant system could not do. As we see again, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That was a practice done in the first covenant. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? No more dead works. By his blood, Jesus does what religion can't. He cleanses us internally. We can be made right with God. We can be transformed from the inside out by God himself. Just to further drive that point home, I'll read this quote from a guy. This guy's name is Philip Edgecombe Hughes. What a great name, by the way. Anyway, he says, animals on this passage, animals are not moral creatures. The unblemished condition of those victims offered up was merely external and superficial in character for the purposes of ritual symbolism. And neither by nature nor in any moral sense were they lifted to take the place of man or woman who is answerable for their conduct and morally defiled in their conscience at the deep center of their being. By contrast, Christ, the incarnate son, is a fellow human being. Partaking of our own human nature, as we saw in chapter 2, and therefore as a man, he's fully qualified to stand in for us as our substitute. An animal doesn't stand in. Christ does. As one without blemish, that is, as a man, morally perfect with an undefiled conscience before God. Competent to offer up the completely efficacious, just means effective, sacrifice of his own unblemished person in satisfaction for our sins and for the purifying of our consciences. He covers us with his offering and it transforms us. It is not merely superficial, but in the very depth of his being that our Redeemer is without blemish and thus that his sacrifice of himself deals in a radical manner with the alienating and disintegrating effects of human sinfulness. His sacrifice doesn't just deal with our sin in a superficial way. Why? Because deep down at the core of who he is, in his inner being, there was no defilement. Jesus is the one who lived with full integrity. He is who he says he is. And that made him perfectly capable in his sinless, unblemished way, externally and internally, to deal with the effects of our sin. His sacrifice deals with our sin in finality. And so the blood of Jesus is greater. It's the end of religion because Jesus has done it. It's the end of ritual. I don't need to order things and set things up perfectly and have it all aligned and then God will accept me. No. It's also the end of dead works. I'm done trying to pull myself out of the coffin. Why? Because Jesus has done it. And not only outward cleansing, but now our consciences are cleansed. And this is good news. Because the inner person, because who we are on the inside can be cleansed now, the gospel offers true hope for hypocrites like us. Because that's the reality. Religion is a hypocrite factory. Why? 
If I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Therefore, I've got to present holiness and perfection outwardly to people, no matter how bad it gets in here. I've just got to appear like I'm in the club. No matter how bad it gets in my inner life. But that doesn't actually deal with sin. Because God does not judge by outward appearances. God looks at the heart. And the other bad news about religion trying to save us is we're all hypocrites. Compared to Jesus, we aren't people of integrity. One way to think about integrity is, are you a different person? Do you present to be a different person publicly than you are privately? And if we're being honest, we can all admit to that at times. That sin, though, keeps us from that public-private integrity. But any hypocrite, any hypocrite can appear clean on the outside. I got my new Target hoodie. I, got a, I cut my mullet off. Sorry, I had a mullet in case you didn't know. But I have a nice haircut. I can present to be righteous. But in the inside, what's going on? Compared to Jesus, we're all hypocrites. We all have things about us that we present publicly that aren't true of us privately. And, you know, if you're an outsider, maybe you're tuning in. Um, if you don't not a follower of Jesus and you look at the church, one of the marks against the church right now, one of the knocks against the church, global church, is the church is full of hypocrites. You're right. The church is full of hypocrites in one sense, is that we're all not like Jesus, but we are followers of the one who is not a hypocrite. We're followers of Jesus. So don't judge the church by its people. Judge it by its Savior. And then maybe ask yourself, are you a hypocrite? Is there something about you that you present that you hide public or privately? But the gospel is hope for hypocrites. Why? Because of Romans 5, 6 through 8, and we're going to talk about it. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus takes our place. He's the substitution. He dies the hypocrite's death on the cross. In our place as the perfect sacrifice. But there's, that means there's no more guesswork. I don't need to try and keep a bunch of rules to see if God will love me. It says here, while we were sinners, he died for us. And he died for hypocrites to heal them. I, keep, I feel like I'm using Tim Keller a lot, but he has this quote that says this. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed, I'm so sinful, not only externally, but internally, that Jesus had to die for me. That's offensive. Someone had to die for my sins. I can't fix myself on my own. So flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's the good news. That the only person who knows what you are like behind the facade, who knows what you're like in private, who knows what you're like in your inward heart, was glad to go to the cross for you to set you free from hypocrisy and sin.
so that you could be like him, that we could be like him. And now the only person whose opinion truly matters, the only person whose opinion of you matters, which is God, is now delighted in you if you believe in his son. That's the gospel offer. Put your faith in Jesus and you are united to him. Or as it says in the new covenant, I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. That's hope for hypocrites. Why? If I'm accepted, I am set free to be truly honest about areas where I lack holiness and have imperfections. I can actually confess with them outwardly without fear of rejection. Why? Because Jesus covers my sin. It is so freeing to be able to admit to someone areas of struggle and to have them remind you, isn't it cool that Jesus dealt with that on the cross? He paid for that sin on the cross. That I can take off the facade and be actually real about who I am. And that's a gospel culture, by the way. I, I pray we strive for that in our small groups, in our accountability time. If you're not in a small group, go back to that email, lowertown at hopecc.com. Because we should be setting that kind of tone in our small groups. And I think we are. Of, of I want to have gospel integrity. That doesn't mean perfection. It means I can, on the one hand, really pursue being like Christ. And on the other hand, really admit where I'm not. And I can have people pray for me and care for me and remind me of the truth and come alongside me. Because the reality is this new covenant makes us new creations. God puts his money where his mouth is and does away with religion and establishes real life in Christ. So that old covenant way of trying to relate to God is obsolete. It's passing away. The way we relate to God now is through his son. And so the gospel application then as we think about just this good news, Jesus heals hypocrites. But you've got to admit it. You've got to come to him. You've got to put your faith in him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe just ask yourself about integrity. Are you the person you claim to be? And I can tell you that the problem isn't that you just need to try harder to align who you want to be inside with who you are outside. Because that's religion. That's works. And it will not work. The problem is sin. But Jesus deals with that sin. And when you come to him, you receive his righteousness. You receive his integrity. And you receive the freedom that he brings. Perfect love casts out fear. Or maybe, you're, maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but there's just something you're dealing with that you're hiding. You've got a sin struggle that you aren't letting anyone in on. Why? My contention, if we look at this passage, is that if you are hiding sin from people and not sharing it, if you're a follower of Christ, it's because you aren't believing the gospel. You aren't believing that Jesus has already dealt with that sin. So that's the good news. The gospel allows me to be confronted by people on my sin. But it doesn't crush me. Why? Because I'm okay in Jesus. He's covered it. I can actually now deal with it. I can get to work. Because as we saw, sin runs deep. So the second call, and this isn't a question. We've got to fight hypocrisy with grace and community. That our sin problem isn't only about our external actions. It's about our hearts. We see that oftentimes with, and I've got a list of sins here that I wanted to talk about, and we will, but 
We see that oftentimes with racism. People say, well, I don't commit racist acts. I don't call people names. I don't do discriminatory practices. Therefore, I must not be a racist. But if we go back, Jesus seems to be concerned about the heart of a person too, about their attitudes, about their thoughts. Similarly, maybe you get, uh, maybe you're just too focused on your appearance. I think we all deal with that at times. Why though? What's the inward reason why? It's not just an external thing. There's a reason why you don't want to appear a certain way, whether physically or otherwise. Maybe you're dealing with anger. We've got a lot of parents, and I know that that can be a challenge. But why? Why are you angry? It's not, you just didn't explode or get upset for some reason. There's something behind that. Or maybe you're just puffed up with knowledge. I know I can be this way sometimes. You just think you know it all. Maybe there's just, you just got pride living in your heart. Well, here's the good news. We get to fight that hypocrisy because all sin is ultimately hypocrisy. If I'm in Christ and I'm called to be like Christ, then those areas that I'm not giving to him, I'm a hypocrite. I'm putting on a facade. And yet he covers that sin. So we fight that with grace. We fight that with the fact that he's covered my sin that I'm in the family of God. And that actually enables me now, because I'm secure in Christ, to get to work on the things I need to work on without fear. And we do this in community. We, at Hope, we really push small groups for this reason. Our small groups can remind us of who Jesus is and how we're not like him, but that it's worth it to be like him. And no matter what, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're covered. His sacrifice secured an eternal redemption. The blood of Jesus covers all our sin and sets us free from hypocrisy. Let me pray for us. We'll move into a time of communion and then I'll pray for us. And, um, here at Hope, we, we practice, we call it open communion. Uh, we only ask that you'd be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church to, Cups are in the back uh, if you need one. But as we think about this, we think about communion. We're taking of the cup, Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. That, when you hold that cup, you're remembering that he's secured an eternal redemption. And because of that now, we get to fight sin. So take some time to remember that as we play a couple of songs and just spend some time with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that um, your plan wasn't futile, but that, it did, that you did send your son, that he's come, that he's redeemed us once for all if we put our faith in him. And because we are so safe, so accepted, so secure in you now, we get to be in this glorious gospel community with people that also believe the same thing, believe in your son to cover their sins, and we get to work together to fight our own hypocrisies and sins. That we get to confess. We get to be prayed for. We get to see you work in our lives. So I pray that as we go through this week, would you help us to turn from our religious ways of trying to relate to you? Help us to turn from our hypocrisy and just be honest about who we are and be so thankful that 
even though we were at our worst, Christ died for us while we were still sinners, which means there's no more guesswork. You love us and we are accepted in the beloved because of what he's done. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.